0: You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. Welcome, everyone. And I am Leila Hussein. Uh, by background, I'm actually a psychotherapist. Um, and I founded the DALI Project, which is a specialist service for women and girls who have experienced or have undergone uh, a practice called female genital mutilation. Uh, but also... I'm a fellow um, at the RSA. It gives me a great pleasure to introduce our speaker today. I mean, this is a very special event uh, at the RSA. Uh, Dexter Diaz is not just, um, I mean, to you guys, he is a speaker, but he's actually a very great friend and a colleague of mine. So it's um, it's an honor to actually be here and actually chair this session for him. Uh, Dexter is an award-winning human rights barrister. Please wait for this. It's a long list. I'm not even joking. A Queen's Counsel, a part time judge. He's also a prize winning scholar at Cambridge University, where he's a visiting researcher currently. He's also recently been uh, a resident researcher at Harvard. He chaired a bar human rights report to the parliamentary inquiry into FGM. That's how him and I met (laughs) a couple of years ago. And he. yeah, basically, he stalked me. That's the word. He was stalking. He yeah. um, was stalking. He was yeah. cyber stalking. <laughs> so through that work, actually, that we did together, um, he helped change a lot of the laws uh, uh, in terms of strengthening on, on protecting girls from FGM. Uh, he does pro bono work across the world on many human rights issues, including child slavery, human trafficking, and many other forms of violence against women and girls. He just published a book internationally with Penguin. This is why you're here today. And the book is called the 10 Types of Human. It has been a number one seller at the Amazon in seven different categories. Uh, Dexter was a finalist in the Liberty and Justice Human Rights Lawyer of the Year Award. But the reason this book is so great, and it's very special because I'm in it too, mm-hmm. so uh, I would like to give Dexter the floor. Welcome Dexter everyone.
1: How did it begin? It began with a child. A child walks slowly down a corridor in silence. And that was it. He was a real child. And it was a real corridor. And it was perhaps the, the most haunting evidence that I've seen in 25 years. as a human rights lawyer... And a judge. And the child. He was really small. He was four foot ten. He weighed uh, six and a half stone. And the corridor was in a prison. And my view of this child in the corridor. Was from this high CCTV camera. Mounted on a wall. And it looked down. And it was in black and white. And I could see him walking away from me. And I never saw his face and he walked he padded slowly along the corridor turned left and went into his room which was his cell and about two minutes later two really large prison officers came rushing down the corridor in the same direction turned left went in to that room and closed the door about a minute later a third prison officer came rushing down the corridor turned left went into that cell and shut the door. And a few minutes later, that child, whose name is Gareth, was dead. What happened in that room? Why do humans hurt other humans? Why do we hurt the most fragile things? And really, ladies and gentlemen, that's what started my research into the book. The answer I want to offer you today may surprise you because I want to argue that a critical part of the solution lies in a remarkable and revolutionary operating system that is in this city that's in this building and may even be in this room if we only know how to look for it and what to look for. About 150 years ago, the truly visionary American poet, Emily Dickinson, as with so much else with Dickinson, she sensed it and she got it. She had an inkling of the answer, the answer, the codex to human hurting why it is humans hurt other humans. And that's what I want to speak to you about. I want to speak to you about this oldest of human problems that goes all the way back to when Cain killed Abel in the book of Genesis, and that stretches from school playgrounds to cyberspace to vans driving into crowds of innocent people on the bridges of our beautiful city why do humans hurt other humans and what can we do about it the reason why i started to look at this was because i was asked a question now as a lawyer normally it's me who ask the questions but i was asked a question i simply could not answer and i was asked a question by the mother of that child His name was Gareth, and his mum was Pam. And at the end of the case, when I was representing their family, Pam said to me, Dexter, why did they do that to my son? And I didn't, in truth, have an answer or a good enough one. And so I set about trying to find it. One of the constituent parts of that answer is to be found in the very heart of Africa. And for me, that is right and fitting and appropriate because the answer is somewhere near to where we originated, somewhere near our ancestral home. If you look at a map of Africa and you try to pinpoint, it's what Graham Greene called the heart-shaped continent, And if you try to pinpoint the center of that continent, you will find, ladies and gentlemen, a country that very few people know and very few people understand. And it's this country, the Central African Republic. In the Central African Republic, there has been on and off raging for the last 20 years in various manifestations. Bloody warfare. internecine civil warfare. It is of a scale that the United Nations said it verges on ethnic cleansing. And how many people actually know about that in this country? You're shaking your head, madam. We don't know about it. One of the greatest humanitarian crises in the world. And in the middle of this terrible brutality and mutilation and bloodshed was a woman. And her name is Sabrina. And Sabrina heard that in the north of the country, there was a combat group, a ruthless combat group, that had surrounded a school. And in the school were 4,000 civilians. And many of those civilians were children. And Sabrina wanted to do something about it. And she wanted to do something about it because Sabrina works for an extraordinary organisation called UNICEF. And so Sabrina went to this school with food and she went up to the commander of this combat troop, General Yaya, and she said, General, here is some food the children are starving. I want to give it to the children. And Yaya, to be fair, thought about it. And then he did what um, commanders of uh, combat troops, what warlords tend to do. And he put an AK-47 semi-automatic rifle to Sabrina's head. But she said to him, General, those children are starving. Here is the food, and I want to give it to them. And what I, it seems to me, had not calculated for was the sheer strength of this operating system I want to speak about with you today. It's not just the human brain. It is a number of evolutionary modules that have adapted over long stretches of evolutionary time, certain, if you like, killer applications that we all have, they contribute to the best and the worst in us. And this particular module that I'm convinced was triggered in operation with Sabrina is one that in the book I've called the perceiver of pain it's also called our empathy system we can perceive the pain of others and when we do we can have compassion and we can care about it at this point we are not sure how many other animals to any great extent share this system some people say elephants do Certainly some of our close primate cousins do. But it's not just about perceiving the pain of other creatures. It's also about sharing other emotions. And one of the questions is, can we share emotions with other primates? I think there's good news. Amongst homo sapiens, it's thought that between 95 and 99% of us have this empathy system. Almost all of us do. It is unquestionably a human thing. And it seems to me that is good news, and it's news that we don't often hear in this time of selfishness and egoism and Trump and Brexit. We don't hear this. You see, humans are certainly capable of this. There's no question about it. They're capable of this. But in these times of terror, we don't hear that also part of our embedded evolutionary system, our inheritance, is not to be selfish, is not to be self-centered, is not to be indifferent to the pain of other people. In fact, we have evolved to be equipped with exactly the opposite as well, to be empathic creatures. And if you doubt that, think about this. Two weeks ago, I was in the Radio 4 studio on the Today programme. It was the morning after this happened, the Grenfell fire. All around the studio, there are these screens of this amazingly, horribly, frighteningly burning building. But at the same time as we heard about this terrible tragedy, reports were coming in that ordinary people ran towards that burning building building people who weren't actually connected to the people in the building people who didn't know people who resided in that tower but they were running towards the danger why is that what does that say about us as a species and think again perhaps about sabrina in central africa because sabrina was operating not just on the front line of a civil war She was also operating, I would argue, at the very frontier of human functioning, at the operational limits of this operating system that we have. And the reason I say that, ladies and gentlemen, is because Sabrina had heard the rumours. And when she went there to that place, she saw them. She saw the metal containers. And the rumours were that Yahya and his troops had imprisoned their opponents in these metal crates in temperatures of 45 degrees centigrade and were effectively roasting them alive. Knowing that, seeing that, Sabrina still went up to him and defied him when he had an AK-47 pointed at her head. And I asked her, were you not scared? And she said, Dexter, she always called me Dexter. Dexter, I was scared, but I saw the starving children. And it seems to me that what Sabrina Avakian, who to me is a hero, but also, and I want to emphasize this, a completely ordinary person, no different, I'm convinced, than anybody else in this room, it seems to me that what Sabrina was doing was accessing this deep evolutionary system that we've got. What she was access- accessing, I think, was us. Sabrina was a Western woman in the middle of Africa. When I was doing my research at Harvard, I met an African woman who was in the West, on the Western shore of the Atlantic Ocean. And her name is Uba. And we met in Boston, in fact, at um, the railway station. Does anyone know South Station in Boston? The big railway terminus in Boston. We met on the concourse, in fact, at Dunkin' Donuts, of all places to meet. Uber and I met at Dunkin' Donuts. And she is a proud and strong woman from sub-Saharan Africa, And for telling me what I'm about to share with you, Uber had received a number of death threats. And what she said to me was this, that it happened back home in uh, Africa. And it was, she said, the, the strangest party she'd ever been to in her life. And it was strange for two reasons. Firstly, because All the relatives and all the neighbours, they came to their home, but her parents left. And it was strange also because it was a party where no one took any photographs. Now, Uba was one of two sisters, and she was the younger sister. And normally she hated being the younger sister. But on this occasion, she was relieved. Because they put the sisters in different rooms. They took her sister to the parents' bedroom, and Uber was in another one. And then it all went silent, and then she heard her sister screaming. And then the screaming stopped. And Uber's clearest recollection, she tells me, of that day was her trying to open the door, and it was her family home, and she knew there was not a lock on the door, and she was turning the handle And yet it was turning, but she couldn't open it. And she realised in that moment that there was an adult on the other side of the door holding it shut. And then she heard footsteps along the corridor and they came for her. And then the door opened. And she said when that happened, her feet didn't work and her legs didn't work and they had to literally drag her along the corridor and they put her on her parents' bed A person who she'd never seen before knelt across her chest. They put a rag or a towel in her mouth and then they cut her without anaesthetic. When that happened to Uba, she was six years old. Why does that matter? Why should we care about that? Ladies and gentlemen, every year, Three million more girls will experience what Uber and her sister experience. And that is what Leila and I have been trying to fight. Three million. And I did a calculation. Virtually the only thing I've ever done that's gone viral. I did a calculation. I tried to work out. If it's three million, how much is that? And I worked it out. It's a girl who's cut somewhere unnecessarily every 11 seconds. And so by the time we finish this event today, virtually everyone, or the equivalent of everyone in this auditorium, will have been cut. Why? Uba started, when she became a young adult, to speak out about FGM. She risked her life to do that. Because of what had happened to her, the mutilation that she suffered, it's very unlikely that she will ever have children. But she understands the pain of other children, what they may go through, and so she risks her life to speak out against it. And it seems to me that what she is doing is she is accessing that same system as Sabrina. Let me just draw things to an end. 150 years ago, Emily Dickinson, wrote this about our operating system. She wrote, the brain is deep, deeper than the sea. And ladies and gentlemen, the sheer extent of our capabilities, of human capacity, if you doubt it, the unfathomable ability that we've got is best expressed, I think, by this photograph. About the same time that I met Uber, the New Horizons space probe finished its nine-year journey. And it had uh, travelled three billion miles from our home to the very edge of deep space. And it arrived here at the dwarf planet Pluto. And so now we know We wanted to know what Pluto looks like, and now we know, and you can see it, that at the equator of Pluto, there are mountains made of ice. And it seems to me this is an extraordinary testament to human accomplishment. And it's extraordinary, not just because of what we know about Pluto, but what it tells us about us. And yet, at exactly the same time that we have accomplished that, Three million more girls every year are going to be genitally cut. Hundreds of thousands of children, like in the Central African Republic, are used as frontline combat troops. Five million children in the world spend their lives and their childhoods as slaves. And I'm going out to sub-Saharan Africa tomorrow to try to look at one of the projects fighting child slavery. And so we can do this but we also have the capacity to do these other things. But it seems to me there is also a danger, a deep danger of us sinking into what is effectively a collective coma. And that coma is one of helplessness and thinking because of the sheer scale of the problem. Three million girls, what can we do about it? But we can do something and we can make a start and we can start eroding and eating into the problem. And it seems to me one of the things that we need to do is to have a radical reboot of this operating system. We need to understand not just the problem, but also the people involved. And one of the chief purposes of my book, The Ten Types of Human, is to put the human at the heart of the human rights problem so that people can see what their lives are like and how strong and courageous people like Leila Hussein or Uber or Sabrina or the dozens of other people who I've had the honor and privilege of working with on the book, what they're like. And they're like us, actually. They are like us. But what I have learned from 25 years as a human rights lawyer is that you only get the justice that you are prepared to fight for. Because justice does not just drop out of the sky like gentle rain. How do we know that? We know that because we were taught that two and a half thousand years ago. We were taught that by Aristotle. Because Aristotle taught us we become just by doing just things. And therefore, justice is also a verb. And 200 years ago, another great philosopher, Edmund Burke, rising to the great Greeks theme, wrote his immortal line, which is that all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. But I want to flip that. I want to ask a different question. And the question I ask is imagine. Imagine what we can accomplish when good people do good things. Imagine what we can accomplish then. Because I am convinced we can fundamentally change some of these social injustices. And therefore, to end, back to Pam's question, why was it that that happened to her son? It seems to me it happened to her son because there was a profound lack of empathy, a failure to understand Gareth as a child and a human being and not to recognize the pain that he was suffering. And that happened, we found in the case, to child after child after child. You know, the early Christians saw the world as an eternal struggle between the forces of light and darkness. But what modern neuroscience and psychology tells us is that these two forces are also in our minds. And they are indelible, simple parts of us. But the good news about the great hurting is that we can change it. I am convinced we are going to change and end FGM. But there is a brutalist logic afoot because there is a simple equation and it comes to this the amount of people getting involved in the struggle will directly impact and correlate with how soon we end it and how many children how many young girls are going to be unnecessarily cut and every 11 seconds counts and so this is my offer to you It's the final thing I want to share with you. Join the fight. It won't make you rich. It won't make you famous. But, ladies and gentlemen, it will reward you in a way that this lawyer and writer cannot adequately explain. And the reason it will reward you is because we are evolved to do that. That our neural systems will reward you for doing something like fighting social injustice. You will get the glow. Because maybe Emily Dickinson is right, that the brain is wider than the sky and deeper than the sea. And I want to argue that fighting social injustice, like FGM, is something as remarkable as this, sending a space probe all the way to the deep solar system because what we are doing is accessing another system the system inside us and we can use that system to stop the clock ticking just think what an extraordinary accomplishment that would be thank you very much for listening
0: just want to make sure everybody, I think my psychotherapy hat came on, I just want to make sure everybody's breathing and okay, I think that's quite, a diff, I mean, I, I I know the work that you do, but I think every time you hear this, there's always this sense of outrage and um, anger and um, just, it's, it's really sad to see, you know, that we still live in a world where you hear these stories over and over again. Yeah. In a way, it kind of leads me to... Uh, I would like to ask one or two questions, and I would want to give the audience a chance sure, to ask sure. questions too. Sure. But for me, um, I mean, I... Since I've met you, I remember you, you, you telling me about this book, and one of the questions that I'm constantly, constantly asking myself, you know, as a... Just as a, as a human being, as somebody who works with uh, different communities and who works with people's behaviour... Um, how do we make sure? How do we how do we ensure that we avoid racism, sexism? You know, how do we make sure someone doesn't hurt another human being? Like, okay. and, I, and I'm and I'm okay. asking this as a survivor yeah. of female genital mutilation yeah, myself. Sure. Sure. It, I, sure, it's always a struggle to explain to people this was organized <coughs> by my mother. Yeah, it's very as you were describe oh It's like a lot of us who have been through this can relate to those stories. Yeah, yeah. So it's how do we get to that state, okay. and, it's, and can that ever happen?
1: Yeah, uh, well, I'm convinced it can. I, well, I, I, it's it's the, the right question. I'm convinced, Leila, that it can. But it seems to me that if we want to try to deal with one of some of these problems, we need to, in a clear-sighted way, understand what they are. If the output is, uh, with FGM, um, a child is genitally cut, What is it, and there's a black box that's contributed to that, but that's the output. What is it that is in that black box that leads to that child undergoing that form of mutilation? And, you know, when I was doing research at um, Harvard and I asked this question to a number of people, no one really has a very, there's certainly no consensus and there is, uh, no one has a really good answer to that. But it seems to me that the first step, if you want to intervene in any form of social justice issue, is to understand the problem. Looking at FGM, you know, we did research for um, the parliamentary inquiry, um, which really, Leila's petition had significantly brought about. It was... the you know, people say, oh, well, the government was proactive and took a stance. They were pushed by social justice activists like Lena and Hoda and every, people who, have, who I admire and who have fought for years for this. When we did the research for that inquiry, we asked a simple question. Why is it that young girls in the West are being sent back to countries of origin to be cut. Surprisingly, the answer that we got most frequently, that it did surprise me, was people were cut because of two reasons. One, it was because of fear, and another because of desire. Fear of being ostracised from their community and a deep desire to continue to belong. Now, trying to understand those processes are really important, because when we were lobbying um, parliamentarians, both in the Lords and in the Commons, <clears throat> they were saying to us, you know, uh, yeah, OK, we get it, Dexter, we get it. You know, FG, we're trying to persuade them FGM is a problem for the UK. There are 65,000 girls who are at risk. We need to do something. Nothing's happened. For 29 years, there's been no prosecution, and no one takes it seriously. So we, we made the argument. We won the argument. They go, right, we get it. We'll arrest loads of people and we'll prosecute loads of people. And I said, look, the last thing we need in this country is another 10,000 black people in jail and another 20,000 black children in the care system. We need to intervene upstream. And in order to intervene upstream, we need to understand what the process is. And to understand what the process is, we've got to understand the forms of ostracism and therefore, one of the worst things that you can do in terms of trying to combat FGM is to traduce and deprecate and demonise practicing communities. Because what that's going to do is to drive people back into traditional structures and they'll feel alienated from mainstream British society and then you are more prey in terms of trying to forge a sense of identity to those traditional practices. And, and, and that's a similar process with terrorism, which perhaps we can get on to in due course? That's it? a long answer to a short yeah. question, but yeah. I'm a lawyer. You
0: know. I think maybe it's been a bias for, you know, because I work in that field, but I think for me, like the ten types of humans you describe, for example, one of the things I was really frustrated with when tackling FGM in the UK, yeah. it wasn't necessarily the practicing community, it was frontline professionals who were not doing their jobs yeah. and not recognising this, because for me if a white girl, for example, has undergone the practice, it, and I witnessed it, it was a different outcome so where would you say in your 10 types of humans where would our UK system fit into that are they the heroes are they the perpetrators where would you I know it's a very (laughs) Um, where would they fit into that I think it's. it's, yeah I mean
1: I, I, I mean the analysis is that the 10 types are 10 deeply um embedded evolutionary drives that, that we, we all have they're in, they're, the, the question that I'm most often, in fact I was on Jonathan Ross's radio show and he, I said, I said the question he said what question are you most often asked about the book and I, I said that people ask me what type are you and, he said, and I said don't and he said I'm about to ask you that and I said don't ask me that because that's the wrong question but, but the, <laughs> the, the answer is the answer is we are all, all of them and because these are mechanisms that have evolved over massive, um, almost unimaginable stretches of time, these are systems that we all are equipped with and they can be activated and triggered. And so to say the British system is one particular type, I think, um, is, would be reducing it and simplifying it too much. What we've got is, um, when you look at how practicing communities are treated, is they are ostracized. They are um, effectively excluded from mainstream British society. And that is a deeply, deeply dangerous thing to do. And you see that with terrorism as well.
0: With terrorism and the recent um, um, Grenfell Towers, I guess. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I think... yeah I, I,
1: with with terrorism for example one of the one of the questions that is asked frequently um, or has been in the last couple of months with the, the, the spate of incidents is in particular how can young Muslim, British Muslim lads be turned into jihadis? What is it that um, happens that leads them to drive to either to uh, put on suicide vests or to drive vehicles into um, British people. when they, and Some of them, like Salman Obeidi um, at Manchester, born in Manchester, brought up in the UK, apparently likable, normal kind of young lad. Why did he do that? I think there is almost a perfect storm of three of these types, because one of the... And colleagues of mine at Harvard were studying, not UK jihadis, but jihadis on the continent, particularly in northern Europe. <clears throat> what you find again and again is that there's a sort of perfect storm of the three of these types, three of these factors. Firstly, um, there is the problem about what I've called the tribalist. We all have a profound need to belong to groups. And one of the most common features of all human beings is we are all members of a number of intersecting... Group, with fellows of this RSA, for example. Um, but we have a number of intersecting groups and affiliations in our life. Young people, young, certain young Muslim men, by no means a majority, but a small proportion of them, have a profound sense of identity crisis as to who they are, whether they belong to British society. And this is, again, where it is so pernicious, where we start demonising the Muslim, Muslim community. And so where they have a sense they don't belong to mainstream British society, and then they feel also ostracized. The interesting thing about what I've called the ostracizer is that the latest uh, neurological, uh, empirical, and scientific evidence shows that um, when you are um, unfriended on Facebook or Snapchat or whatever else it is, uh, or unfollowed, that jolt of pain is actually real. Yep. That rejection is real. And in fact, the brain, because social pain is something that has developed after physical pain, the, the human brain actually recruits many of the same cyst- neural systems as it does for social for physical pain. And so it is a very real phenomenon. And so you ostracize people, and then they, they feel that pain. But the third type, which I think is the critical type, is what I've called the aggressor, these deep um, drives where we strategically can use violence and threat and aggression, like General Yaya in Central Central Africa with Sabrina. Where you've got, um, for example, uh, a young person in Britain who feels ostracized, feels excluded, has a, a, a real confusion about sense of identity, and then he is exposed either to radical preachers or to internet um, propaganda, you can induce a sense of rage and revenge. And the thing about strong um, emotions like that is that they can deactivate the system that we've been talking about this afternoon, the empathy system. When you deactivate the empathy system and you downgrade it, then you stop either perceiving the pain of others, or, if you perceive it, you stop
0: caring about it. Well, I think I'm going to be the aggressor at this point. You always um, are, ladies. Yeah, I'll, I'll be the aggressor and then come as the rescuer to the, <laughs> to, the, to the audience. At the back, someone over there at the back? I'd just like to know your views on when it gets to the point of enjoying other people's pain. I, the whole streak in humanity <coughs> of sadism, which means that, you know, you have loads of empathy
2: because you actually enjoy watching and feeling their pain. Thank you. Yeah, certainly very interesting. FGM, the jihad, the terrorism, they are very interesting uh, uh, and uh, useful topics. But, you know, the, your, your topic is today, why humans hurt each other. Why humans hurt each other. And, um, and I think the aim is to reduce that hurt we uh, do to each other. Very, um, yes, uh, laudable aim, certainly. But let's understand why humans hurt each other, and, uh, and that way we will probably know better as to how to reduce uh, this hurt. Um, I would think the education, the what you call the, um, uh, the affluence, the social justice, they contribute to a uh, uh, greater degree of, uh, of, as you call, peace uh, in our society. And I think we should pursue that to achieve that uh, less of, less uh, and more peaceful uh, human societies. Thank you. Why do you think it is that the whole topic of human rights seems to get a terribly bad press, at least in the popular media? Yes. <laughs> yes. And human rights lawyers,
1: sort mm. of one notch below tax collectors yeah. and paedophiles and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Firstly, on sadism. I think it. I think the research evidence, and certainly uh, colleagues at Harvard are looking at this. It's, it's an incredibly troubling and perplexing phenomenon, I, I agree. It isn't widespread, however. The extraordinary thing about human beings, and this, this may, you know, I sit as, as, as a uh, part-time judge as well, I was sitting as a judge yesterday, dealing with two really, really difficult cases where um, adults have done terrible things to children, sexual things to children. In fact, humans find it really difficult to hurt other humans. Most people find that a very strange thing to believe when you look at the world and look at what happens. But in fact, we have an aversion to hurting other humans. And they do, they've done an extraordinary series of experiments. Whereas, for example they will have a fake plastic hand over someone's hand. So you cannot hurt the person. Normally they get one of the undergraduates as the guinea pig on this. And they'll put their hand, and there's a fake plastic sleeve over it. And they'll give you a hammer and say, hit that person's hand. And people find it almost impossible to do it. And they test the constriction um, of various veins and the amount of how it affects your blood pressure and heart rate, people get very, very traumatised when you know you can't actually hurt that person. Why is that? It's what they call action aversion, that in fact we have an inbuilt system, which they may be linked to our empathy system, which actually makes it difficult for us to hurt other human beings. And there is an extraordinary statistic after the Battle of Gettysburg, we, you had you know, neighbor fighting neighbor, particularly in inter, um, civil wars, inter-Nissan warfare. After the Battle of Gettysburg, they, found, they went to the fields after the ceasefire. They found tens of thousands of muskets that were loaded and not shot, where people were pretending to shoot and not shooting, because it's difficult to do that. It What what they think, one of the mechanisms by which we can overcome this inbuilt aversion about hurting other people is when we start to dehumanise them. And when we, my research at Cambridge about, was about child restraint, based upon what happened to Gareth uh, Myatt. We look, we are one of the countries in Western Europe that authorises the use of pain on children in custody. And it's something I I believe is profoundly immoral. Profoundly immoral. and We should stop it. But one of the things that we found in the research is that one of the mechanisms that um, makes it easier for prison officers to inflict pain on small children is they stop viewing the children as human. Instead of viewing them as children, they view them as a problem. Or they view them, as one of the respondents, the research said to us, they view them. They don't see the child, they see the crime. Oh, he's a burglar. Oh, he's um, uh, a drugs dealer. No, he's a child who was dealing drugs because his mother was someone who was a sex worker and was sent to prison. But no, they see them in that way. So they label and they lose the humanity. And as soon as you start dehumanizing people, then it's much easier to do that. And so one of the processes that we found was this dehumanization, and that facilitates the use of violence. As to uh, your question, sir, about education, I, I think you're right. The question, however, is what kind of education and how do we mainstream it? I think, actually, um, you know, people say, oh, you need. To, there's a sort of patronising discourse about FGM. You need, to, you need to educate African communities about FGM, which I think is one of the most... This, this is one of the most offensive things I've ever heard, actually.
0: You should see my face when they say to
1: me. Yeah, exactly. We need to, we need to educate these people about FGM. Their mothers have suffered FGM. Their grandmothers, their great-grandmothers, they know about FGM... We need to understand the mechanism and the social forces that are making this happen. It's not a question of education. But in terms of trying to understand and get involved, say us here in the West, how we can get involved and start to be active in some of these issues, I do believe that our great resource and our secret weapon is this empathy system. And empathy really requires two things. It needs understanding the problem. For example, how many people did know that there were 5 million child slaves at this moment in the world? I'm going to go tomorrow, um, and we're trying to do something about some of them in one African country. 5 million. We don't know about that problem. I think once we know a bit more about the problem, that helps. But the critical missing piece, it seems to me, is we need to humanize the problem. And so that we understand what the lives of these people are like. And that's what I've tried to do in the book. And the book is, um, uh, 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 Zoe Williams in The Guardian said, a great slab of a book, and I apologise for that. It's 816 pages. But what I wanted to do is to tell the stories of these people. Because you will see, in fact, I am a very proud member of Homo sapiens. Because when you see what we are also capable of i think it will astonish you and it gives me immense hope and it means that i think we can fight these things and we will end fgm later and it's just a question of time how long it takes and so the education that we need is uh, awareness training and education about the problem but also awareness about what the lives of these human beings are like human rights why does everyone hate human rights? I think, I think we need, personally, I think we need to rebrand it. Human rights is about something as radical as revolutionary as treating people with decency. What a terrible thing that is. How awful that we want to treat people with decency. That is a terrible thing. And so when we talk about diminishing or withdrawing people's human rights, or not prioritizing them, what we, when you look at the human rights of children in custody in our prisons. What, in fact, we're saying, if we don't privilege or care for their human rights, we are not prepared to treat them with decency. Why is that? The reason for that is we don't regard them as being morally equivalent to us. But if it happened to us, it wouldn't happen. And now, the interesting thing is, one of the experiments that we did was we asked people, well, do you think that you, should, uh, prison officers should be able to inflict pain on children to control them in prison. And we, it, w- it wasn't scientific, it was just anecdotal, but we did it at, at, in one of the lectures. And about 70% of people, maybe 75% of people, said, yes, we think prison officers should be able to use pain infliction. So what they do is they inflict pain on the children's wrists uh, in order to overwhelm them with pain. And sometimes it ends up with children with broken wrists, some children end up with two broken wrists. Should you do that? Yeah, 75% thought you should do it. We then ch- sharpened the hypothetical and we said do you think that uh, prison officers should use uh, the same pain-inducing holds on children in custody if your child was one of the children? All the hands disappeared. There were about 5% of people who then thought that it was justified. And the and that's an interesting thing. It, uh, it uh, ties into one of the drives, one of the types in the book, what we call the kinsmen, and this strong, profound sense of our protective nature towards our own kin. Interesting on FGM how that's overcome. Once you stop seeing the people who are on the receiving end of these treatments of the lack of human rights or degrading treatment as being morally equivalent to you, it becomes easier to do it. And that is why it's important. And I I think that when we talk about human rights, we should just talk about a decency agenda. It's about treating people equally and decently. And I don't think that's a particularly bad thing. Call me old-fashioned, an old-fashioned lefty, a soft and fuzzy, as they call us at Harvard. Um, I think that's a good thing. And that's what we should be fighting for.
0: Thank you. I'm so sorry we don't have enough time to ask any other question. First of all, I would like to thank you all who joined us today, uh, obviously those of you in this room and those who joined us online. And really, I just want to um, thank Dexter um, for coming along today to the special event. And for me, like I said, you know, it, it's it's a privilege to have been part of your book. And and this continues. And, and, and it's just to remind, this is just the beginning. It's not... Uh, an ending or somewhere This mis- is this, preface, the this is just, we're just touching just the started. subject. So I think the question, I think all of you, by the time you leave here, it's to, well, h- what role would you play in this? I think that's really key. I think, and I, but and you can't, can, but, is, but you that's, can.
1: But you can, just start, you can yeah. start today. You well, can start. That's how it started today. for
0: me. I didn't wake you up one day today um, and say, I'm going to be a campaigner. It really was that question why was I cut? It started with that question. 15 years later, I'm here. I think it's that question. So thank you all for coming and hopefully we will see you at the next RSA event. Thank you very much. Thank you you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, thersa.org and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.